Web3 with me is a discussion style podcast about the ins and outs of Web 3.0, hosted by Zach French, known as Off Edge in the verse. From crypto to NFTs, DAOs to DeFi, we cover the abstract philosophical promises and the new business models enabled in this new decentralized world. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform or watch the show on YouTube. Thanks and enjoy. Zach French is a bar certified attorney and nothing expressed by Zach during Web3 with me shall be considered legal advice. All the opinions expressed by Zach and his guests are solely their own opinions. All content in Web3 with me is for informational purposes only. Zach and his podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed during Web3 with me. Thanks so much for tuning in to Web3 with me. It is our mission here to educate, and we realize that some basics of Web3, like WTF is a digital wallet, might be helpful for you to know. We will be releasing a series of short videos on YouTube and Reels to help cover these high-level topics. We hope they're useful for us, and feel free to leave us feedback. My guest today is Mike Kanovitz, founder of Jurat, a startup with an ambitious goal of bringing legal rights to Web3 by connecting courts to the blockchain. Mike is a founding partner at Lovey & Lovey, one of the most prominent civil rights litigation firms in the United States. After practicing civil rights for 20 plus years, he had his first crypto consumer protection case, which soon led to the discovery that the world of Web3 aligned with the values he was already seeking to enforce in his current career. Now, he is building a solution to make it all possible. LFG, baby, let's start vibing. Welcome to the show, Mike. Thanks, Zach. Good to be here. I've been excited about this, not only because uh, a mutual friend works for you uh, over at Jurat, um, but because I feel like Jurat is solving a problem uh, with the Web3 perception issue, which is on the security side, right? Um, so I'm excited to get into it with you and learn a lot about that. But first, I always like to let my audience get to know my guests. Um, this can be Web3, but I really want to know like who you are, like what makes Mike Mike? So feel free to start wherever you'd like. Well, I guess I'll start by disclosing the fact I'm an attorney because people have opinions about that both ways. Um, and I practice civil rights litigation. That's that's my background. And of course, I got into it because I want to spend my time working on issues that feel like they have meaning to me and maybe do things that if I wasn't doing them wouldn't happen. You know, so the way I feel about a lot of corporate jobs and I and I did work at a corporate law firm for a little while as if I got up from my desk and went on and did somebody else. Somebody would sit down there and it would keep going exactly the way it is. So I've sought out cases and issues where, you know, I. I I felt like I could put my whole self into it and uh, hopefully make a difference. And believe it or not, that drew me to Web3 uh, because uh, during COVID, when they shut the courts down, you couldn't go really around suing people very much. So and we have a we have a large law firm, particularly for doing civil rights. We had 100 people in the firm. So we all decided to work on projects that were interesting to us. And I decided to do crypto consumer protection. And then that led me down the rabbit hole. Uh, and it's been a fascinating journey since. Yeah, I love that. I love that. So you you kind of, you have this innate personality where you want to make a difference. You don't want to be a cog in the wheel, right? And you want to have an impact on society writ large. Um, and then in turn, when you started to get deeper and deeper into your practice and, you know, outside factors made you kind of um, look into the crypto space, right? Um, now you you, are, you find yourself building a product around it. So take me through kind of the, the founding story of, of Jurat from, you know, idea to, you know, kind of where we are now, and then we'll kind of go through um, exactly how it works and, and that kind of stuff. Sure. So, uh, so it did grow out of our, the consumer protection practice at my law firm. And uh, you know, we put up a cheapy website and we're just pretty amazed by how many people wrote us saying, you know, help me, help me, help me. I, I fell for a phishing scam. You know, someone in Asia told me that they loved me, you know, like all of the ways that people get get you know screwed over. Uh, and for most of them, we couldn't really do anything because, you know, they don't really know the person that did this to them. Their, their actual identity. They know an address on a blockchain, but that's just a string of numbers and letters. 
And so, you know, there's all these consumer protection laws out there, but there's really nothing a court could do. So I started thinking around that issue and, uh, you know, trying to look for someone who might be responsible to help these people. You know, the miners seemed like an obvious uh, place to go because, you know, they are the operators of the blockchain. And even though it's not a formal corporation, it's sort of like a partnership. It's sort of like an unincorporated association where they're all, you know, working through the agreement that their software forms to operate this network, but no one of them could do anything. Even if you went and got a court order and served it on them, it wouldn't make any difference. Whereas if, if somebody had stolen money out of your bank account, you know where to take that court order and the bank would comply. So, so what we started doing is we got together with some blockchain engineers and talked about the problem from you know, the legal and you know, procedural side of it with the court and the problem with maintaining decentralization uh, you know, from the blockchain side of it and basically came up with some layer one protocols to allow the nodes themselves to go out to court dockets, look at what the courts are saying and be able to implement it autonomously without introducing an intermediary. So there's no one you know, telling the blockchain, oh, the court said this or the court said that because that's up to interpretation. You know, Many lawyers have jobs doing nothing other than telling their clients what the court said. So, so we had to you know, streamline that process in order to be true to decentralization. I love that. I think one of the things that uh, I picked out of reading your white paper was the fact that you have a focus on not sacrificing some of the core tenets and promises of blockchain in doing what you're doing. Um, do you want to expand a little bit about how you're going about that in a truly Web3 native and blockchain native way? Yeah. So, so yeah, our, the, the first priority is we can't sacrifice what's good about blockchain and decentralization, because then we haven't done anybody a service. You know, we have to take what exists, preserve it and improve it. And, you know, hopefully help the blockchain world find that common ground with the, the law enforcement and the regulators and everything that takes place in real life so that, you know, blockchain and Web3 can really achieve the vision of, you know, becoming this backbone of, of our internet and the mainstream commerce and all of that. One of the things that, that was recurrent in, in your white paper was the fact that you are maintaining all of these core tenets of the blockchain in building this out and how important that was to, to I guess, get buy-in from the people that are already interacting with Web3. Yeah. And I was just wondering, like, what other things other than decentralization um, are you focused on to make sure that we, we kind of preserve the, the aspects of the blockchain, the reason that people actually interact with it? Right. So, uh, so the first is we wanted to preserve the uh, transaction verification process as it exists now. So right now, if I send a message to the blockchain telling it I want it to do X, Y, or Z, I sign it with my private key. And as that message gets passed amongst the nodes, they'll confirm, yes, this was signed with the private key. And that's what makes the network resilient and impervious to attack. Uh, so we wanted to make sure that that process was preserved when we were bringing in, you know, essentially this outside legal authority and, and bringing it on chain. So we built the protocol such that each node still goes through a confirmation process. It's just that instead of checking that it's signed by the private key, it checks that the transaction has been authorized by a, a valid court. And it does that by going out and checking the public docket like any human being could. But now each node goes and looks and says, oh, yeah, that court order really does say I'm supposed to approve this transaction and therefore I will. I love that. So I guess what does it take um, on your end to get courts to participate uh, in this part of the process? I imagine that that is one of the big hurdles for you is to get buy-in from them to acknowledge blockchain-based IDs um, and, and issue orders based upon that. Yeah. So that, that was another, in addition to preserving decentralization on the blockchain side, another of the design philosophies was we can't be telling judges what to do. You know, we can't tell them how to do their as research. much as we'd like to sometimes. <laughs> and can you imagine sitting down and actually having to try to educate them what a what a wallet is and what a private key is? 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I can't do that with my friends that are like, that hang out with me every day. So let's, I know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm a lot older than you are, but most judges are even older than me. So good luck with that. Um, so, so what we did is, you know, we came up with this system that sort of puts it on the litigants to generate their own transaction ID and provide it to the judge. And the judge just does what the judge normally does. You know, they hear the evidence, they write an opinion, they put it on the docket. And if they side with the plaintiff, then they'll use the, the ID that the plaintiff tendered. If they side with the defendant, they'll use the ID that the defendant tendered and they'll just paste it into their, into their opinion. The same as if, for example, you know, you were litigating over a bank account, the judge would have to paste the bank account number into their opinion because that's what it concerns. And so we tried to make it completely uh, seamless. As far as uh, judges' willingness to do this, we so far they've had no problem with it. They've kind of been uh, amused, you know, yeah. by it. Um, you know, they're like, "Great, I don't really have to learn what this is," uh, and and it still works. So, yeah, that's nice. Um, and I guess from an anonymity perspective, um, how are you maintaining the the anonymity side of of the blockchain through your app? So uh, if somebody wants to come into court and litigate, they, they by and large can't do that anonymously. You know, there are, I mean, there's some court procedures. If you can come in and say, you know, this is a matter of my personal safety or something like that, they'll let you proceed as a John Doe. But other than that, you know, courts are, are public proceedings and everybody has a right to know what's happening. So at least from the plaintiff side of it, that's just not how the process works. From the defendant side of it, uh, we have set up, the, the legal uh, engineering around this so that a plaintiff could sue an account address as opposed to suing the individual and then still provide due process notice to the address so that at least at that stage of it, anonymity would be preserved. If the defendant comes in and litigates it again, they'd have to ask the judge uh, for permission to proceed as a John Doe. Or yeah. John Doe. Yeah, that's that's really interesting because, like, I guess, I mean, it, it, it kind of hits on one of the core use cases that, you know, I explore a lot through the show, which is like, what is identity? Yeah. Right. Um, I think up to this point, uh, a typical person would say, well, it's your name, it's your date of birth, it's your address, it's, you know, the things that you've liked on Facebook, um, you know, uh, <laughs> but like, more importantly, what what blockchain has done and what web three has done is they've provided an identity layer of what you actually do, right? Uh, it's a transactional and what you own is a much better reflection of who you are, uh, than the zip code that you live in or the city that you live in. Right. Um, that's not to take away that I don't have pride about Atlanta because I live here and I think it's a great city, but, Zach is more of the art that he purchases uh, through NFTs than he is the city he lives in, in my opinion. Yeah, it's a super granular way of getting to know somebody. It's the, it's an important point. Um, you know, the 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 ability. I guess the blockchain certainly ties everything back to an address and the ownership, and it makes it very public. You know, query if that's better or worse than uh, when, you know, Facebook and Google are the only ones that know those things about you. Um, so it's all about balance. Uh, my guest last this past week was um, Justin Daniels. Uh, he specializes in cybersecurity. Uh, he's an attorney over at Baker Donaldson. And we t I mean, the episode is literally called Finding Balance. And it's because there's one side that says, I don't want you to have all my information. Right. But then the other side of the person is like, but wait, you got to keep me safe. Right. And so you have competing interests there. And then once you're keeping someone safe, how far is too far? When do you become a surveillance state? Right. So there's like you got to find all these different kind of intricacies and and try to find a balance where it's fair and equitable for everybody. For sure. I've been encountering that issue. And I also do a privacy law practice uh, around biometrics. So fingerprints facial identification. And, you know, we file class actions from time to time having to do with, you know, businesses that are collecting this information, not disclosing that they're collecting this information and maybe not handling it in a safe way. And of course, 
similar to to the things that you own and the and the permanent record of those transactions, you're never going to change your biometrics. And so if they get out there and can get abused in a certain way, I mean, who knows where it all leads? We're just barely beginning to, you know, scratch the surface of how it's all going to come together and what it's going to get used for 10 years from now, even. Um, so the the issue of of control and safety and you know i'd like the convenience of just being able to walk up to my front door and if it recognizes me lets me in mm-hmm. um, but by the same token you know if, if that's a nest or whatever the 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 uh the, those door doorbells are uh, those, those get hacked and people take that information so yeah yeah i think about that all the time when i have nanny cams at my house yep right like uh where did i buy these nanny cams from who what's the deal with this company are they keeping all of the the video i don't know i mean i looked into it before i did it but yeah. you know at the time you're just that those are the types of things you have to think about and whose servers are they running it through and uh, it, it just it just becomes mind-boggling yeah it is it is um one of my favorite quotes from your white paper and i'm going to read it um that like really struck a chord with me. It kind of hits on what you were talking about earlier. You say the massive commerce, however, is predicated on the enforceability of laws, often complex. If blockchain is to attract mainstream commerce and becomes its backbone, which is a core goal of Web3, it must provide the certainty of effective enforcement that commerce already enjoys and demands. I... I say that in so many different words on every single show, right? <laughs> like seriously, like it, people have to take a practical approach to this and realize one, not everybody wants the autonomy and two, not everybody wants to be on the blockchain until they feel safe. For sure. Right. There's no mainstream adoption. So with that, I think let's go through a thought experiment. Let's, let's say Jurat really catches on. You've got buy-in from all the relevant jurisdictions and the courts um and and it is successful by all measures i got it's a two-part question one what does it take for you to get there what are the parties that you need to partner with and do business with in order to get there and then two what is jurat doing once you have that adoption and network effects that you need for it to be effective so so the 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 first part of the question so who who do i need to bring into the fold uh i think that uh what, obviously, we need to be able to get courts comfortable with this, but so far, so good. Uh, as you know, a court only gets involved when there's an actual case or controversy. So there's somewhat of a chicken in the egg problem, which so I need people to be using Jurat and then suffer from a crime so that they then have a, a controversy to bring to the court. Now, that's not completely uh, a problem because people can use it for settlements. Uh, we just had a lawsuit this week where we had the blockchain itself uh, bring an action against individuals that have been sanctioned by the U.S. government so that they're not allowed to transact their blockchain accounts. So we actually sued them uh, to get an injunction to freeze their private key. So that's an immediate case or controversy. So it's out there and it'll be happening. But there is there is that ramp up uh, between getting adoption and then getting use is the first thing that and that's that's for the idea of using this at, at, at the layer one so that the whole blockchain can be compliant there is also this idea where you can just use it more like an oracle in a smart contract mm-hmm. and i think that will get much more rapid adoption because that's a utility for a smart contract that doesn't exist right now and, and i do talk about that in the way paper the problem of you know taking advantage of what smart contracts have to offer, which is this automated execution of rules so that everybody can rely on it, is great for a very simplified use case. Like, I want this digital asset to transfer if the reported price on the blockchain reaches X. Mm-hmm. But, you know, what about where I want to pay this manufacturer in China for these bicycles that got shipped to my store so long as they meet the specifications, that doesn't work very well. And so you need to have uh, circuit breakers in there where courts can become involved. That, that's, that's one side of it. And, and then the other side of it is you can't code every contingency that, that can happen into a smart contract. 
haven't been able to write that. No, as it, of it, yet. It. Like, because you, you can't predict the future. You don't really, I mean, you, you try to account for what you can. And the analogy I think I used in the white paper is that there's, you know, thousand page contracts that lawyers get paid millions of dollars to draft. And guess what? Those end up in litigation. So, so there has to be this ability because you can't be omniscient. Um, you can't even know for sure what someone meant by their by by the words and without the context. And so there has to be some way to resort to court. So I think for smart contracts to really take off, there needs to be a solution like the one we're offering, whether it's us or not, you know, who knows. But uh, so, so I see those as prime adoptions and then uh, getting across to regulators and law enforcement how this technology gives them ways to do their job that expand their abilities to regulate in a fair way. So, for example, right now, there's not a whole lot that regulators can do about decentralized protocols. It could be a blockchain, it could be a DeFi contract, whatever, unless it's in fact centralized so that they can deal with the people who have remained control. And, you know, I don't want that. Uh, and most most customers, particularly after FTX, don't want it. Um, <laughs> or they have to find a way to 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 get at people in real life, uh, and and basically they have to rely on KYC. You know, KYC practice through the banking system. So you see crypto regulation really taking place through Treasury, and and you know, and the SEC can make their rules and bring enforcement actions again against centralized people. But, you know, it's Treasury that sanctioned uh, Blender.io, mm -hmm. you know, and, and sanctioned the software. So, um, so, so, so having the ability to go to court, do an enforcement action like you are familiar with involving a smart contract gives the regulators a much more, uh, uh, you know, elegant way of fine tuning their regulations because now they have a way to enforce it that is very specific to what's happening on chain as opposed to I'm going to take KYC, I'm going to put it on steroids, that's going to have an impact on your privacy. No one's going to be allowed to transact with each other unless they go through these centralized VASPs. I don't think I don't think that you know the blockchain world really wants to see it involved in that direction. But they're also like holding on really tight this, to this idea that the government shouldn't have any say so over what happens on chain. And really, you know, if you accept the idea that blockchains are human institutions that operate in countries where, you know, the users sit and where they own property like a house and a car and the government doesn't come and, you know, just seize it from them for no good reason. Uh, and and if you if you come to accept that courts really do protect individuals like that's what they're there to do. They're the. They're the organ between government power and and the citizens. And so that's the proper place to put these decisions. And if, if blockchain gets its arms around that, then I think industry will start to want to include these sorts of capabilities because they're doing themselves a favor. I love that. I love that. I do want to unpack a few things there. Um, number one, the uh, the suit that you recently filed uh, was was a pretty big deal. Do you mind just kind of walking the audience through exactly what it was um, and and why you did it? Sure. So uh, so the the first blockchain that we've created with with the Jurat technology in it is a Bitcoin fork, and we forked it as of uh, you know, block height seven point seven eight oh eight, but it was uh, effective January eighth, twenty twenty two. So any Bitcoin accounts that existed as of that moment also exist on our. Jurat BTC blockchain. Some of those accounts were sanctioned by uh, you know, the president of the United States because they belonged to you know, North Korean hackers that were uh, engaging in ransomware uh, you know, against major US corporations or Russians that interfered in the US elections or people who are guilty of really heinous human rights violations. There's a bunch of different executive orders that, that give those powers. And so no one no U.S. person is supposed to allow a transaction to take place involving the blockchain accounts that the government listed that belong to these individuals. Now, uh, if you go look on the Bitcoin blockchain, those accounts got emptied out because the government passed the sanctions and 
and the criminals just laughed and used their private keys and, and moved the coins. Uh, so, so essentially, the miners on the Bitcoin blockchain ended up processing transactions that the federal government says are illegal and that you're not allowed to do. Um, now, they don't really have much of a choice because that's how their protocol works. You know, query whether that needs to be addressed. But in our in our fork of Bitcoin, we put in Jurat so that even though no one can hit a button and say, I'm blocking this account, we can go to a court and we can say, here is proof that these accounts have been sanctioned by the, the U.S. government and uh, therefore their private keys should be held to be invalid to spend these coins, uh, enter an order. And so what we got this week is uh, what's called for your audience, a temporary restraining order. It's something you can do at the very earliest beginnings of a case to preserve the status quo. So what the judge did is the judge entered an order that said the coins are frozen for 14 days and that and, and now you can go serve the lawsuit on the defendants. And then the defendants can come in and if, if, if I'm wrong, they'll tell me I'm wrong and I can unfreeze these coins. Uh, so, so as of this moment, uh, the, the Jurat BTC blockchain has actually complied with sanctions by the Office of Foreign Asset Control of the United States Department of Treasury. And that's, that's historic because no blockchain has done that before. Um, and, it, and it's good for our community. It's really good for our miners because they don't have to worry that they're somehow violating the law. Uh, and I think it's going to be good for Treasury once they see that, you know, that this this technology exists for their regulatory purposes. But at any rate, we just today start or yeah, today started serving the defendants and we got the judge to allow electronic service so we don't have to go to North Korea and, you know, tag them with the papers and tell them they're served. Uh, and so we, we sent NFTs to some Ethereum addresses that they're that they own. We want to send uh, dust transaction messages to them on Bitcoin, but technically that would be violating the sanctions because <laughs> has a little bit of value to it. So I, I, I applied for a special license with Treasury to have the right to send those transactions. I assume it'll get granted, but we're waiting on that. For purposes of service. Got it. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That would be kind of ironic, right? <laughs> I love that. I mean, what, that? <laughs> it's you know, it's I, we keep coming back to a central point here, which is one, um, regardless of the blockchain's anonymous, decentralized, self custody nature, you can still enforce. You still have to be able to enforce laws around it, right? Uh, and and two, Jurat is maintaining that the people, the miners, the individuals involved uh, transacting on the blockchain are not losing what they value most in interacting with Jurat, right? To get these legal protections, which is which is just great. I wanna to move to the next point, which is was one of my questions um, as I was reading the white paper was, you know, when you're determining intent of a contract, right? Uh, there may be some off-chain data that you need. Um, and you kind of alluded to the fact that oracles might play a role in some of this. Have you thought about how oracles might uh, interact with the Jurat blockchain to help bring some of that off-chain data, like the specifications around a bike being consistent with what was issued or not consistent, uh, on, back onto to the blockchain so that it could be enforceable? So the answer is not that much. Um, uh, because I, I see that more as, as something that smart contract developers are going to create as they know that they have the ability to take the dispute to a, a neutral referee who actually has legal authority to act. Um, but I mean, Jurat itself is essentially an Oracle that's built in, you know, at, at the layer one level, because each node is going and looking off chain for itself to see what, what, what the court has ruled. Um, now those same nodes can go perform that function and then provide that data to a different blockchain in the form of an Oracle service. And that is something that uh, we've done for Ethereum and will continue to do. Uh, like we created an Ethereum wrapper contract for a court uh, in 2021 uh, to transfer USDC. So, so, that, so, so we can provide 
Oracle information about the exact state change that a court says should happen. Uh, so there's no ambiguity. But in terms of the things that the court would want to know, uh, there's a lot of value in other Oracle services that can bring that onto the blockchain so that, you know, you get all of the good stuff about blockchain. You know, it's undisputed, it's reliable, you know, it's not going to change. We know exactly your know, provenance. We know exactly where it came from. Those things can really help with the evidentiary procedures uh, a court is going to use. And, and they can help with the evidentiary procedures a court uses, even if the dispute's not about a blockchain transaction. So I think, it, you know, we'll get there. Courts tend to move slow. Uh, no, never. <laughs> <laughs> I filed something yesterday and it's already ready to go tomorrow. You know? <laughs> Actually, they were waiting for me when I showed up. They, they were <laughs> That's great. That's great. So the logical extension of that question is uh, a lot of this is about enforcing rights around digital assets. Um, one of the areas that is being explored and, and I think is necessary to understand and really proliferate Web3 and blockchain is the tying of physical assets yeah. on chain. Um, what where is Jurat and kind of that relationship? Is that an expansion plan or anything like that to oh, yes. uh, help enforce physical so that's rights? That's a real issue. Um, yeah. you know, uh, so for digital assets, uh, we can already put a, a Jurat functionality into it. So, for example, we're about to release a new uh, wallet update for the Jurat BTC, and you'll be able to mint ordinals. And when you mint them, you'll be able to choose the exact license or upload your own bespoke license, but it'll be on chain and part of it. So there's no dispute and you'll be able to select a royalty. And if that royalty doesn't get paid, then you can enforce it against the ordinal. You can go to court, you know, you can freeze that ordinal. They'll either pay the royalty. If not, you'll, you'll take it back. So, so like, so that works great for a digitally native asset. And if you're going to create a digital asset that reflects, for example, your house, so yeah. the deed to your house, it's got to be able to have the same judicial functionality on chain as your house does off chain. So, you know, you're a lawyer, you know, if you get a mortgage, somebody's got a lien. And a lot of times that lien gets, uh, you know, that mortgage gets sold a hundred different times. Mm -hmm. So that NFT that represents your, your deed, which is now encumbered by another NFT that represents the mortgage, have to be able to talk to each other, including ownership. And then what happens when you default on it? Uh, and, you know, unfortunately, you know, the, may, may, hopefully your house doesn't get sold, but, you know, the fees go up or whatever the case may be. That's got to be able to be reflected on chain. And the mortgage company isn't the only entity that might end up with an interest in your house. You know, what happens if you get divorced? What happens if there's a mechanics lien um, that gets, you know, that gets filed against your house or someone gets a judgment against you and, and, you know, tries to satisfy it against your house? There's no way right now for those legal obligations that are important in the real world and which, you know, actually make home ownership and home finance possible um, or a tax lien, for example. You know, you got to pay taxes on your house. There's no there's no route to get those on chain in a way that doesn't involve a trusted intermediary uh, who you know is going to be fallible and a central point of failure and all of that other than to go to court and have it declared and so having jurat functionality either at layer one of the blockchains that are handling those uh, digitized real world assets or as part of the you know the minting contract that creates them allows a decentralized method and a legally binding, you know, referee, for lack of a better word, to say, yeah, this is now part of the legal obligations of that digital asset. And this is the method by which that happens. So, so I, 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 think, I, I think I think uh, right now we're just playing around with ordinals, but it'll it'll translate. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, having having done a bit of research on the real estate side, my, my wife's a real estate agent, um, going to a, a property conference. Um, I mean, basically what they're doing is just um, taking everything that's done off chain and doing it on chain right now. It isn't that it's necessarily any more enforceable. They still have to do all of the off chain legal requirements uh, in order to 
purchase a house, transfer a house, what have you. Um, so at some point, like it just, it requires adoption, right? I mean, just like, you know, you're seeing with, with Jurat, like you need the courts and the municipal system to recognize that. And when they do, they're going to realize that it's a much more efficient system of record. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. Um, of course, uh, you know, on an individual basis, the person that gets elected to county clerk or uh, probably or the recorder of deeds probably doesn't want to have to learn about it. So, uh, you know, the properties of the world will make it go smooth and, and at some point they'll get the buy in. But that, that's going to be down the road because all the people who deal with the with the property office aren't going to want to learn it off the bat either. So. It'll, you know, I, I suppose there'll be a period of time where you have like essentially what you say Proppy's doing where it's in parallel. You have yeah. to be filing it in paper, but you can also maintain it on the blockchain. And then over time, as people get comfortable or or, you know, you have that case where the NFT gets stolen and now you can have a legal battle about it. And the court can say, yeah, that is that is legally binding. And furthermore, I'm instructing the the recorder of deeds to change the paper records to match what the what the what the NFT now says. So I love that. I who love knows that. how it's going to happen? But the, the more it gets used, the, I mean, we all know things are going to end up in court and get settled. Exactly. Just the provenance issue alone, I think, it just provides so much value to what we would consider traditional governmental systems of record. Um, a lot of it being uh, paper printed out in a file cabinet. Uh, maybe misplaced. Uh, I've had a, a relative whose uh, divorce settlement, they crossed out her name uh, by accident. And so she wasn't technically divorced because she did not sign it. So there's things like that, that That's like, a nightmare. right? <laughs> it apparently wasn't the first time in this jurisdiction. So uh, it, it is it is a pain. Um, I do want to take it to the second part of my question. And thanks for explaining that. Um, the second part of the thought experiment was let's let's fast forward five years. I mean, you're seeing adoption now. You're, fi you're filing successfully lawsuits around uh, enforcement on the blockchain. Um, what is Jurat in five years, assuming all goes well? What are you doing? I think we're doing a couple things. One is we are operating our own legal, legally and regulatory compliant forks of popular blockchains. Uh, those will be usable in their own right. Uh, additionally, the infrastructure that we create to support those blockchains will be made available to other blockchains that want to be able to import this capability. Um, and so we, we actually have a plan uh, hopefully by Q4 to release a, a polygon fork that will, at a, at a very low level, allow courts to interact with smart contracts, make contract calls, um, and you know, essentially take what we've done with the Bitcoin fork, which is relatively simplistic. It's freeze, it's transfer. You know, that, that's, that's what happens on Bitcoin. Um, and apply that to a, a vibrant smart contracting environment. But the, the nodes that are operating that infrastructure can supply that same information to, to other chains. And I think that other chains will eventually want to incorporate that. And I don't know exactly how that's going to happen. Is it going to, is it going to be incorporated on a main chain? Is someone going to create a side chain? But there's real utility there. And so it'll, it, it will start to get adopted that way. And then secondly, uh, is we, we will be uh, a studio that's helping to incorporate this technology in other people's products uh, because the blockchain engineering is substantial, but really so is the legal engineering. Like for example, to make the Bitcoin fork work, you know, we had to understand what sort of entity is this? And uh, in order to make sure that courts had jurisdiction over the ledger, which is everywhere and nowhere, we had to right. have an agreement on where the ledger is, you know? <laughs> you know? So, uh, so, so, I, so, you know, we're deeply into it. We put a, a lot of thought into these issues. We're, we're like out in front and there's, you know, uh, Bitcoin SV is trying to do some of this too, but, uh, you know, we, we're here to guide people. So I think that'll be an aspect of it. And then I do think that because regulators and law enforcement are going to be wanting these capabilities and are going to need guidance about, you know, how do you even go about doing it? Uh, you know, where do we get a wallet? 
uh, what do I say to a court? I think law enforcement regulators and courts, there'll be an educational aspect of this. Uh, uh, by the time you became a lawyer, Westlaw was being thoroughly taught in schools. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't looking through books that often. Yeah. But, but like when I started off, they would come around to the law firms and they'd bring you lunch and they'd try to teach you how to use their product. So I feel like we're going to have to do some of that with, the, with, with judges. And so I'm actually looking forward to it. So there's just an educational aspect. Um, there is a sales aspect uh, and then there's a strategy aspect, right? Um, of, you know, what is the right way to go about this? Do we want to target, uh, you know, in terms of partnerships, uh, courts first, then exchanges, um, and then, you know, whoever else um, you'd, you'd need to, uh, to kind of adopt it in order for it to work. Um, and, and if you get there, then you've created uh, the the legal security safety backstop that we're missing right now frankly that's what we're hoping to do and then <laughs> maybe i can turn around and represent all those people that contacted us during covid and help them get their points <laughs> there you go i mean i i've got uh, somebody sitting there with some of my money right now for uh, sending me a dm at just the right amount of just the right time just the right time of night um it is a rite of passage in this space but it'd be nice if i still had it right um can, so can there's you still see it on the blockchain oh yeah what definitely what which what, what, what kind of coin uh, it was, I, I, I paid 0.2 ETH for a fake mint. Oh man. So they, they've got your ETH and yeah, huh. yeah, yeah. So it's, it was, it was, it was great. I mean, honestly, hats off to them. I guess if I have to be a, an optimist here, uh, <laughs> they, they had sent me a message, a direct message on discord at the exact time I joined the Adidas, uh, discord. It was right after the Adidas Prada drop. And I was like, okay, but it had the same icon. So I just thought I was in the Adidas discord. It was like, you know, mint. You know this thing. Here's all the classic like scammy things, but it was right there. So I just I was eleven o'clock at night, clicked on it, went through, and then I was like, wait a second. Uh, and the website was beautiful, Mike. I mean, I'm telling you, it looked just like Adidas's website. If you clicked on products, it linked to an, a real Adidas website. Um, it had pictures of Board Apes everywhere. They had already done that, you know, collaboration with Board Apes. Um, and at the end of the day, I was like, wait a second, that's a direct message. Luckily, I had my uh, cold wallet set up and I just started transferring assets at like 1130 at night, just getting them out of there. And they have, I mean, I still have the hot wallet. I don't use it very often, but they have, they only took the money you minted. They had at the time, like 500 ETH from doing this, uh -huh. but they didn't like, oh, like the, the transaction that I signed did not allow them to take any other assets. They just wanted the, the mint. Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's stuff like that, that someone like me is just like, Part of, part of learning, right? But it doesn't have to be. And a lot of people won't participate because that's part of the learning. Oh, for sure. Well, first of all, I respect that you respect the artistry of what they accomplished with that. <laughs> and I think it's also, you know, kind of cool that they didn't become greedy. Uh, they, they, they tried to keep it small so that they could keep it going for a long time. Yeah. And unless you minted multiple at the time, I mean, what did you pay? I think uh, Bitcoin or uh, ETH was probably at, you know, like 2,500 at the time. So, you know, it's, you know, 500 bucks, right? It's not, it's, I'm not saying that's not a small, like, I mean, it's definitely not that much in the grand scheme of things. Um, I can survive luckily w without it. <laughs> totally. And, and, you know, same here, you know, I, obviously it, it, we all know that there's a lot of people out there who are, you know, coming to crypto because they can't even get a bank account and a small amount of money can be their life savings. Uh, and, you know, part of another part of what drove us to, to really look at this issue and try to come up with solutions is, you know, getting those emails and it really is heartbreaking. Um, and, you know, like I'm, I'm well off, I'm sitting here in the United States. Uh, if, if, uh, if my crypto got stolen, I still have my visa card. I still have my bank account. I still have my paycheck. Um, but uh, having people from all over the world try to get this across really you know, drove it home. Yeah, it's it, it brings up a really, really good point. Um, my, one of my previous guests, uh, Ian Andrews, he's the CMO over at Chainalysis. Mm -hmm. And he really drove home a point for me, which is 
it's not always about the unbanked. There are a lot of unbanked, but you and I, we don't know what that's like, right? Like, fortunately we don't, but like, there's a lot of people that add effects. But on the other side of things, if you're transacting in a country like Nigeria, um, where you have to set up a manufacturing company and that manufacturing company wants to trade in the global reserve currency, which is us dollars. But in a country like Nigeria, it may take you 30 days to convert your Nigerian money into a us dollar. And by that point, the prices may have changed for the inputs that you need to manufacture it. Yeah. Well, if you have USDC, that problem is solved. Yeah. Yep. Right. Um, so there is a lot of really cool use cases for people in countries that don't have the benefits that we have, um, and enforceability if Jarrett has anything to say about it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, no, that, that's a, that's an interesting point is, uh, is, is we're providing highly liquid access to dollars all over the world, which, you know, doubles back to the idea that blockchain is in our national interest, not just for that reason, but for a lot of other reasons, you know, being able to avoid censorship in countries that are less free than ours. These are all, you know, American ideals that we, that we like to see spread around the world. Um, and, and so blockchain has a case to make, you know, law enforcement has a case to make, and we're hoping that we're able to, to get the best of both worlds combined and, you know, help blockchain move forward. Yeah. And it's essential that we can enforce our legal rights when we do that. Right. Um, it's not, uh, I mean, from the first episode of my show uh, in May of 2022, uh, one of the common you know, discussions is a lot of the bull cases for crypto is dystopia in the rest of the world. Totally. Right. And if there is exists a balance where you can still have legal rights and not complete societal breakdown, um, you know, I'd, I'd choose that one, totally. I think. <laughs> the, the dystopian point is a great point because yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm a big sci-fi guy. And one of the things that was upsetting to me was this idea that if courts really can't do anything about this, then courts cease to be particularly relevant if blockchain is ascendant because they, they can't do anything, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, I don't, I, I, I practice civil rights law. I do trials. I see justice happen and, and I know that it's really important. And I also, you know, because I've been practicing law for a while and we all went to law school, we have an understanding that none of the way that human beings are able to interact, the complex ways that support the way we live today are possible without complex laws that require enforcement mechanisms that everybody can rely on at the end of the day. I mean, people like to hate on courts and the law and lawsuits, but, you know, it, it's like oxygen to the to the commerce system. So. Um, yeah, so, so, so that dystopian thought really uh, drove me to try to figure out how are we going to make it so that these two systems can coexist and maybe even make things better on both sides of the equation. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's uh, providing that level of security not only puts the kind of sentiment of new consumers or customers or communities, however you want to phrase it, but it also just provides that level of balance where, um, and you talk about this a lot in your white paper, where there's risk priced into all these assets and they're still at extraordinary prices. Yeah. Imagine yeah. what happens when that risk is decreased, right? I mean, there that that in itself is the, the ultimate scale, risk reward, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, the whole idea of property rights are things that you can rely on. And so the more reliable it is, the more valuable it is. And I, I think of the analogy of, you know, if you took my house and put it in a neighborhood that was poorly policed, where, you know, houses get broken into all the time and, uh, you know, you're, you're, not, you're not safe in your own home, that house is worth an awful lot less, even though it's the exact same piece of property down to the you know, last detail as it is in the neighborhood I'm fortunate to live in. So, so having, uh, you know, effective law enforcement makes property much more valuable. It makes property much more valuable. And then taking your analogy a step further, uh, it also can decrease disparity in pricing, right? If you live in an, I live in an, uh, a gentrified area for all intensive purposes. Um, and the people that go to the corner store, 
in the area a couple blocks from here where there is a ton of crime and there's a ton of drugs, they're actually paying more for their goods and they can afford less because there is so much shoplifting and so much theft that the owners of these shops have to price it in in order to make money. That's a really interesting point. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, and also there's less competition in those neighborhoods for corner stores because a lot of people are like, hey, I'm not getting involved. I'm not. <laughs> yeah. so, I mean, so like imagine how FDX looks if, you know, Citibank and Chase and all of them felt comfortable taking digital assets. Yeah. FTX does not happen. No, it does not. It does not. And I'm sure that that has crossed a lot of people's minds yeah. lately, having thought about that. Um, well, we're, we're nearing the top of the hour. I do have one really burning question uh, that I want to ask you. And then I have two traditional closing questions uh, that I close each show with. Um, the, um, what is Jurat's business model? How does Jurat actually make money? So like a lot of startups, uh, our original phase is we want to change the world. Let's figure out how to do it. We'll worry about how to make money later. We're now moving into the money-making phase. And so, so one is by creating our own bespoke blockchains, you know, we will have a token economics associated with it. So for example, the Bitcoin fork that we created has its own coin, which is JTC. Uh, it's not publicly, oh yeah, actually that's right. You're an early adopter. I'm an early adopter. <laughs> yeah. So that's gonna be listed soon. And we also are gonna have, uh, we're, we're about to come out with an app called Zabo that'll be a peer-to-peer -peer way of, of uh, trading it and therefore monetizing JTC. And we've been encouraging people to actually spend it as Thank you. <laughs> As digital currency, uh, so 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 that uh, you know we didn't pre-mine any of it because you know we're true to Bitcoin, but uh, you know we are participating as miners and therefore you know we'll just make money like other miners will. Uh, licensing the technology to other blockchains that want to use it uh, is another business model, and then. Because we have this court connection capability, and, and Zabo is an example of this, we have the ability to create commercially viable smart contracts where you have the ability to resort to court and therefore you know, offer these products that are much more usable by mainstream commerce. So Zabo, for example, uh, Two sides, you know, we, we use the, the the example of a freelancer who wants to do business over the internet. Which like a fiber, they don't know. Fiber, right. Yeah. They can specify their contract. They can require the customer to escrow the money in that contract before they begin so they don't have to worry about getting ripped off. Meanwhile, mm. the customer doesn't worry, have to worry about getting a shoddy product because if they didn't get what they were supposed to get, there's a dispute rec, you know, resolution mechanism built in. And for Zabo, we've got uh, an arbitration mechanism built in by an arbitration company that we've started that's Web3 specialized called Arbit3. Oh, nice. um, and that'll deal with small disputes that people really can't take to court. But for larger disputes that people do want to take to court, they've got Jurat built into it. And so they will be able to use smart contracts in a way that feels an awful lot like a paper contract. I love that. So you've got uh, some vertical and horizontal integration going on um, where you're moving upstream, realizing that um, there are certain disputes that are best handled by courts and there are certain disputes that the courts need not uh, interfere with. A lot of people have arbitration clauses in their contracts. And if uh, it makes sense for the, the whatever the transaction is, then it, you know, you can make that work with, with Arbit3. That's, that's very cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, Let's get it launched. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited for it. Uh, excited for for everything you're doing. Uh, I do have my two traditional closing questions that I ask every guest. The first one is, how do you describe Web three? Oh, wow, that's a good question. Um, I, you know, I, I'll tell you how I've heard it described, and, and it's it's from all over the place. Some people call it like the Internet of Value, which I find not very satisfying at all. Uh, the decentralized internet, I think, is a really good description of it because it is uh, the, the way that people are going to communicate over the internet. It's going to sit on top of the internet that exists. So I think of it as another layer in the internet stack that is decentralized so that there is no point of control, 
so that the data is, is distributed and it's resilient. Uh, it is censorship resistant uh, and should be up to the extent that the law says otherwise. So uh, you know, we, we see uh, Web3 as, as, as you know, part of the decentralized internet and Jurat is part of the stack in Web3 because you know, if somebody is using a, a decentralized uh, 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 social media site and they post copyright infringing material or you know national secrets or something, you know there has to be a legally authorized method to take that down, just as there is in Web two. But in Web two, you know you can go serve the paperwork on Facebook and say take it down. In Web three, there's nobody to serve it on. So. That's a really, really good point with you're seeing really high adoption and lens protocol and uh, Farcaster and on all of that. And that's a question that comes up. How are you enforcing OFAC? How are you enforcing copyright infringement? And they, they can't do it if they're really decentralized. So either you're centralized and, you know, you're, you're using some efficiencies and some cool things that Web3 has to offer, but you're not Web3. Uh, or there's got to be some other method by which the law gets enforced. And you're going to be that method. I love it. So that, that actually leads perfect into our next question. I know we've gone through a thought experiment, so some of this may be a bit repetitive. Um, but where do you see yourself and Web3 as an industry in the next six to 12 months? And then where do you see yourself in Web3 in the next five to 10 years? So the next six to 12 months is a, I, I think, is a struggle for Web3, but a really interesting struggle because while it feels like the house is burning, there are people building other rooms. And, and so we're going to see like that old house is going to burn down and there's going to be this new house. And so that's what's going on right now. It's an uncomfortable uh, uh, space in which to build where, where you know you feel like everybody's barking at you. Um, but I think it's going to produce really cool, really usable products. Uh, so that So the next six to 12 months, are building under stressful circumstances that'll have a lot of good war stories that people will be able to tell in five years when I, I do think there will be substantially more adoption built upon what's going to get built in the next six to 12 months. And, and it won't, we might not even be concerned that we're calling it Web3. I, you know, I really do believe that the mantra that you know, Web3 is going to succeed when people have no idea that that's what they're using. And, and I feel like Zabo, Zabo is that, you know, it's a, it's a payments app that's able to use smart contracts in a way that, you know, facilitates payments that you couldn't do in a web, a web two way. You know, you'd have to go get an escrow agent and they're going to charge a fee and, you know, they're going to make sure that uh, they're going to charge you a special fee if they have to review legal papers and all of that. So uh, I, I think that, that there's so much there and that can be released for you know, more widespread commerce, more widespread ways that we, we live our lives every day. And so far, it's only been focused on a very niche, you know, financial, some would say casino uh, use that drew people in. And now we're going to build from it. I, going back to the early, early days, earlier days of the internet. So like in the 1990s, uh, I, I dated a woman who was a librarian for AOL, which was like the portal at the time. Yeah. And so, and it was still at a time where people tried to index every single website out there and categorize it. And that was her job. And she told me that like 90% of the sites on the internet were porn. And so porn's what drew people in uh, and yeah. then look what the internet became. And so I, th I feel like crypto and, and, the, and the finance and the casino part of it drew people in. And now it's going to become something else. Yeah, I mean, it, you hit on a really good point, which is uh, porn uh, being a, a mass adopter is just reflective that humans are humans, right? Yeah. Um, we, we're always going to appeal to human nature um, in, in the end. Um, and if that means that it starts in a crude area, but then expands to be so many of the different use cases that are now possible on the internet. That's how we figure it out. A lot of people would say that the reason digital marketing got a start was because of porn, right? <laughs> um, so it's just, that's just part of the, the growth prospect. It's an easy, easy thing for a politician or someone to be like, oh, it's only used. And it's like, well, let's, let's stay away from these, you know, all encompassing words. But um, yeah, I'm excited to see what you guys build. 
uh, really appreciate you coming on the show. Um, and yeah, I look forward to, to building a legally safe future uh, or watching you build a legally safe future. That's great. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for tuning in to Web3 with me. If you enjoyed the show and want to help us grow, please hit the subscribe button on YouTube or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you want to connect with me personally, you can find me on Twitter at Zach underscore French underscore.